Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you've been coming to Sunday school, hopefully you know where that is. We've been studying that. Also, feel free to use the table of contents. We'll be in the New Testament, which again says we're in the portion of Scripture that says somebody's coming again. The Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Somebody's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to kind of hone in on verses 5 through 8, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 just so we can kind of put it in context uh, this morning. And I've used this illustration several years ago, and if you're anything like me, you forgot what you had for breakfast yesterday, so this might be like a, the first time you've ever heard it before. It's a great illustration, and one that just, uh, just really drives home uh, the gospel to me, and so I'm going to tell it again, unashamedly. Uh, years ago, there was a former special, services, uh, special forces soldier. He had spent 20 years in the service. He had three Purple Hearts, four combat tours in Afghanistan, and he went and he appeared before a judge in Cumberland County, North Carolina. So pretty highly decorated guy, served a long time, special forces, and he's, here he finds himself in front of a judge. And even though he had retired from military service like many combat veterans, Sergeant Cerna had a hard time leaving the battlefield behind, and the effects of his post-traumatic stress disorder had driven him to alcohol abuse. And this actually wasn't the first time that he had appeared before this, this specific judge. And after a quick hearing, he was sentenced to jail. And when I read that story, I got frustrated with the judge because it seems, he seems so disconnected. You know, here you have this decorated soldier that's standing in front of you. He's, off, he's had a hard time uh, both in the service, four tours in Afghanistan, and now he's out and he's struggling. And it seemed like this judge was just so disconnected and just lacked all empathy. You know, he hears the story. It's a very quick hearing. It's time to go to jail. The judgment seemed harsh and uncaring for a man who had been through so much. And I felt myself thinking as I was reading that story, I'm like, that judge needs to get off of his high horse and come down here and understand really what's going on. He needs to get off the bench, get off the high horse, come down here and recognize what's really going on. I'll tell you a little bit more about that story at the end. It's called a teaser, by the way, in case you're wondering. But for the past three weeks, we've been using various lines from the hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People, to kind of look at different facets and aspects of Christ coming into the world. Theologically, it's called the Incarnation. And the past three weeks, we remember we looked at this promise of peace, that's going to be this kingdom of peace. Along with that is this uh, promise of pardon. Last week, we looked at the promise of the promise, right? So this promise out of Isaiah that this, this uh, shoot is going to grow up from what looks like to be a dead stump, and this kingdom is going to be glorious. And here's what Tim Keller said, again, in his helpful little book, Hidden Christmas. Highly recommend it to you. It's a little teeny little book, very short to read, good to have on the shelf. Here's what Keller said. Christmas is not simply about a birth, but about a coming. God had planned for the arrival of his son before he even created the earth. And like any good writer, he foreshadowed the great person Jesus would be through the course of history. And so again, that goes into kind of our understanding of the scripture and the lead up and why we do the Advent candles. And you know, it says somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. This Messiah is coming into the world. 
This week, the word that we're going to look at, remember, we've, I've been trying to make them all start with the letter P so that you can understand them. We've looked at peace, pardon, promise. This morning, the big word that I want you to have in your head is participation. Participation. That's the word that I want you to have in your mind. And, and why is this word important? What it shows us is that Christ is not a distant observer of the fight against Satan and sin. He is intimately involved and aware of our struggles and sadness. Here's what Dorothy Sayers, who was a British essayist, said. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Christ came to earth to come and walk in our shoes, to taste our sadness. But how and why he did this is an amazing picture of love and grace. And I want you to see if you can pick up on this as we read our text this morning. Remember, we're going to kind of hone in and look at verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, but I want to read those verses in context. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the text we're going to look at this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And pray, uh, ask that you would please pray with me as we ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us here. So let's pray. Father, as we look to your word, we humble ourselves before you and we ask and pray that you would speak to us. Take these words, apply them to our hearts and our situation. Lord, Holy Spirit, please come remove distractions. Help us to sit at your feet for the next few moments and help us to just be reminded of your grace and your mercy and reminded of the cross, and reminded of the hope that we have. We pray these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed a very strange word in the title of our sermon, if you looked at it, or even as we sang that song, the God will change her pining sadness, that word pining. It's not really one that we use a ton in our day-to-day -day life, and contrary to what you might think, this doesn't refer to the installation of framing lumber, which is typically pine. What it is, is as it's defined, it's suffering with, with or expressing longing or yearning for someone or something. Let me say that again. The definition of the word pining. Suffering with or expressing longing or yearning for someone or something. And the stanza of the hymn that we're using this morning says, God will change her, speaking of the church, his, God's people, God will change her pining sadness into ever-springing gladness. And that is actually a stanza of hope. Because what it's telling us is that the church's present suffering and sadness is one day, someday, going to be replaced by joy. 
an ever-springing gladness, one that has no bottom, one that has no end. Kind of the, the, the spring that's welling up will continue forever and ever. I have no idea what that feels like. I can't wait to find out. And remember, during this Christmas time, the, those who are hostile to Christianity mock believers this time of year and ask as they look at the birth of Christ, they say, is this it? Is this all you have? They mock the coming of Christ as a baby. They see it as a ridiculous myth or a fable. And they're much more willing to tell their children about the coming of Santa Claus instead of Christ. They look at the Christian message this time of year and go, what a pathetic, pathetic thing. You know, this little baby that's born. And they also mock the later suffering of Christ on the cross and they see it as pathetic and weak. Look, your God came and he came in as a little baby and at the end of the day he gets beaten up and killed. Why in the world would we want to worship and adore that? Santa Claus seems so much more powerful. And you think, why in the world does the mocking world look at the, the message of Christmas and mock it so violently? Number one, the world values strength and victory. It doesn't value weakness and humility. And the gospel says that the way up is the way down, and it actually flips the word success on its head. Here's Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, speaking of Jesus. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And as we know, when we look at the message of Christmas and the message of Christianity is one of giving your life away in service, not holding tightly to these things that you have, but to give freely of them, to give others deference for the sake of Christ to give your life away in service, knowing that we do not live by the principle of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is not how we live our lives. We live our lives as one of service, giving our life away, knowing that this life that we have in the here and now is not the end. That does not have the final word. So the suffering that we experience in this life, the generosity that we show, giving even when it hurts, the reason that we do that is because we know that we're not trying to hoard all the stuff to ourselves. We're called to give it away and give our lives away because that's what Christ did. It changes everything. Again, here's what Tim Keller said, talking about the coming of Christ. He said, no one is really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we've lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about a claim that, if it's true, means that you've lost control of your life? You can't be. So the question this morning, especially as we look, is who do you say that Christ is this morning? Just a good moral teacher? Just some kind of moral exemplar that you're supposed to follow? Or is he your Savior? Just the Christmas message as we think about the manger and the impact of Christ's incarnation, his coming into the world. Does it mean something to you? Is Jesus your savior? Or is this just another myth and fable that happened several thousand years ago and we just kind of bring it up because it's cute? Who do you say? What do you think about Christ this morning? Is he your savior? Does the manger matter at all? Are you just waiting for me to be quiet so that you can get out of here and get to lunch and get on with the rest of the Christmas stuff? Who do you say Christ is this morning? For Christians, <laughs> the gospel message revolves around a few things. It revolves around the manger. It revolves around the cross. 
and it revolves around the crown. All three of those matter. The manger, the cross, and the crown. A lot of times we focus in on the cross and the crown, but you don't get those unless you start with the manger. They all hang together. And we typically don't (coughs) associate the cross with this time of year. Instead, we focus on the manger. We typically reserve the cross for Good Friday. Yet the cross is central to the Advent message because the infant Christ of the manger grew up, lived a righteous life, and died as a sin offering as a man on the cross. And there is no cross of redemption without the manger. It matters. It means everything. And so the big question we're going to look at quickly this morning is, why is the cross so important to the Christian message and why should we care? Why is the cross so important to the Christian message and why should we care? (coughs) We're going to look at two points. Number one... It reveals how Christ came into the world, but it also reveals why Christ came into the world. So the how and the why. Let's look at that first point. It reveals how Christ came into the world. In Isaiah 53, you may be familiar with that passage. The promised Messiah is described as one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And you may know that passage in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. Remember, in the Old Testament, somebody's coming. So they say, this one who's going to come, he is going to be despised and rejected by men. Again, here's what Keller said. There's no other religion that says God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows that he knows what you're going through, and when you talk to him, he understands. This idea of an empathetic God as we go to him and we pour out our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, don't you understand? Lord, don't you see? And we know in heaven that there is one who can can empathize with us because he has participated with us in this life and knows what it's like. Today we're looking at what some call the hymn of Christ. If you look at verses 5 through 7... It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The ESV study Bible had a really helpful note. He said, remarkably, Christ did not imagine that having, quote, equality with God, unquote, which he already possessed, should lead him to hold on to his privileges at all cost. It was not something to be grasped, to be kept and exploited for his own benefit or advantage. Paul is not saying that Christ emptied himself of his divine nature. And we got to be really careful on this. When Christ became a man, he was both fully God and fully man. That's a divine mystery. I have no idea how that works. But the scripture teaches it. He was fully God and he was fully man. And... This context, though, when we think about what's going on here in this passage, suggests a change of status. And what we're looking at is economic versus ontological. And I know that's a big fancy word. Ontological means his being. Economic kind of means his, his status or his rank. And so, theologically, Christ's condescension, and when he did that, he waived the privileges of rank economically while remaining fully God in his being ontologically. So we have to hold tight to the fact that even in his incarnation, he remained fully God, fully man in one person. And I actually like the way the King James uh, translates this verse. He says, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul again wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. <laughs> and you see in verse 8, Christ connects all of this, his incarnation and his condescension and his humility, he connects all of this together. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 27, the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And you think, Dave, who cares? <laughs> who cares? I can, sit, I can literally hear your eyes rolling in the back of your head. Who cares? The, th the reason why all of this matters is fully God and he's fully man and his condescension, his incarnation, all these fancy theological words that we talk about. The reason why all of this matters is because all of it is linked together for a very specific purpose. All of it is linked together for a very, very, very specific purpose and honestly, our only hope. Imagine being born and knowing that your whole life is ultimately moving towards a brutal death on a cross for the sake of your enemies, knowing full well that you have the power to change that outcome and avoid it, and still being obedient to that call. From the moment of Christ's first breath as an infant, his whole life is moving towards a brutal death on a Roman torture device, and he knows full well what's coming. You think about that and is yet still obedient to the call. Again, the ESV study Bible, Paul is stressing that Christ, who had all the privileges that were his rightly as king of the universe, gave them up to becoming an ordinary Jewish boy bound for the cross. Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And while he had every right to stay comfortably where he was in a position of power, this love drove him to a position of weakness for the sake of of sinful mankind. Here's what J.I. Packer said, now in heaven with the Lord. For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost, for unlovely people. That's amazing. Again, what we're trying to do is just kind of set the manger in its historical context. It's more than just cute baby coming into the world. It's more than, you know, the Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby kind of version that, you know, I like six pounds, seven ounce baby Jesus. You know, placing that in its historical context is the why would this, why does this matter so much? Why should we care that Jesus was, was born in flesh? Why should this be a time of celebration where actually when we gather together on the Lord's Day on Christmas Day, instead of grumbling, it's a time of, man, this is awesome. It just, it just feels right to be with the Lord and be with the Lord's people and to take the Lord's Supper on Christmas. I mean, what a, what a privilege, what an honor that we get to have. The gospel, when you think about it, is almost too outlandish to be believable. And notice I said almost. <laughs> Again, one, one little quip that Keller said a while ago, he said, you know, basically the only plausible objection to the Christian message is that it's just too good to be true. 
The cross of Christ is inextricably linked to the manger. This shows us how the cross is central to the Christmas story. But, second point, it also reveals why Christ came into the world. Why did Christ come into the world? How he came. He humbled himself. He came in flesh, came as a baby. But why? Let's talk about that. There's a great hymn of the faith, and can it be? says, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. This was our state after the fall, dead in our sin and utterly helpless. And so you have the, the prophecy of Isaiah, this coming shoot that's going to grow up from what looks like a dead stump, the manger, the cross together. They show the grace of the Father towards his helpless people. What it is showing is that God himself has made a way for his enemies to be brought in. Just as the curse of sin came into the world through the disobedience of Adam, the power of sin and death has been broken through the righteous life and obedience of the second and better Adam, Jesus Christ. All this Christ did to secure salvation for his people out of sheer love and grace, and it kicks off with the manger. Physically, of course, it was promised from all for the foundation of the world. Contrary to the king and leader who hides in the castle and refuses to get in the fight, Christ never calls his sheep to follow him anywhere he himself has not gone first. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Christ did not come to avoid the suffering of this life. He came to earth to taste our sadness and to walk with us in the midst of our lives. What does this mean? What it means is we can come to Christ in the midst of our sadness, our grief, our worry, our suffering, our fear, and we can find a listening and an empathetic ear. We have a Savior who loves us. And often the Christmas season is a tough season for many. As you think back on the, the loss of a loved one, strained family relationships, looking back on a year's worth of built-up worry and regret, Christmas can be a, a hard time of the year when you think back and it's a, relationally just a struggle and what you don't hear is this cold command from behind a cold castle wall to toughen up and get over it. What you hear is the kind voice of a Savior calling you to follow Him, even into where it's scary, even into where it's hard. Come and follow me. I'll lead the way. And I know what it's like. Once again, Keller, Christianity says God has been all the places you have been. He's been in the darkness you are in now and more. And therefore, you can trust him, you can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort, strengthen, and bring you through. How do we know that Christ cares this much? When he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Come and pour your hearts out to me. And we have this faithful high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You're like, how in the world could we possibly know that Jesus loves us that much? The cross. That's how we know. We look at the cross. The cross of Christmas shows a Christ who cares. The cross of Christmas shows a Christ who cares. And so why should we care? So what? Paul gets very practical in verses 3 and 4. Did you see it? 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So you think against the backdrop of Christ's humility and his self-sacrificial love, Paul calls those united to Christ by faith to express the same humility and self-sacrificial love. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson said. I wish I could read it in his cool Scottish voice, but I can't. I won't even try. Here's what Ferguson said. Here is the secret of a genuinely united Christian fellowship. Its members count each other more significant than themselves. And we have the strongest possible motive for doing this. Christ counted our salvation more important than preserving his own life. And so again, we look. Again, we don't really associate the cross with this time of year, do we? But we see how the manger, the cross, and the crown, they're all linked together. Christ coming into the world for a very specific reason, to rescue and redeem and die for broken, messed up, needy people like you and me. To come and he came and to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. And we are called to do that. To not make Christmas all about ourselves. To not make Christmas all about chasing after just bare consumerism. To give our lives away for the sake of others as we walk in the footsteps of Christ. And then Christmas becomes a time not as of just hoarding all the things to ourselves, but giving freely away. As we say, come and follow this Christ who's changed my life. Seeing our own need. That we had no hope apart from him. But thanks be to God for his grace and his mercy. Do you remember that soldier standing before the judge? This is the payoff. That, that judge standing, that, that guy standing before the judge and he got sentenced to jail. He had been sentenced to jail by district court judge Lou Oliveira in North Carolina. And during his fight to stay sober, he had appeared before the judge over 25 times to report on his progress, but he admitted to lying about his most recent drug test. So the judge handed down his sentence on Sergeant Cerna. He said, I, the judge, you've appeared before me. You did lie on your drug test. That's against the terms of your release. And so I sentence you to one night in jail. And the judge wanted to get the point across, but he didn't want to crush Sergeant Cerna. And that's when something incredible happened. The judge himself drove Sergeant Cerna to jail. Sergeant Cerna turned himself in. He was escorted to the cell. But as Sergeant Cerna sat down on the cot, he heard a rattle at the door and he looked up and saw the judge enter the cell, sit down on the cot, and the door was locked behind him. And you think, why? You see, Judge Oliveira was also a combat vet. He knew the effects of PTSD personally and was worried that the isolation would trigger this soldier's PTSD again. And so what he did is he left the bench, he became a prisoner himself, and the pair of vets stayed up late into the night trading military stories inside the cell. He was a friend to this man. The judge was intimately aware of the struggles Sergeant Cerna faced. He moved towards him in empathy and he shared the struggle with him. It's a good story, isn't it? Spent the whole night in jail with this guy because he says, I know what you're going through and I'm going to do it with you, even at great cost to myself. You think about that and ask the question, why in the world should we care? As we draw this to a close and we consider the importance of the cross to the Christmas message, think about the second member of the eternal trinity. Think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave up the safety and wealth of his father's house to willingly give his life for the sake of sinners like you and me who could not save themselves all by sheer mercy and grace. He left the throne room for a manger. He humbled himself by being obedient to the call of the father to die for his enemies, and he would then call those people into his forever family because he knew them and loved them before the foundation of the world. He shared in the struggles that we all face, and he continues to walk with us, and he calls us to follow him. He doesn't stand behind us and whip us and tell us, hey, you go into the dark, scary place first and tell me how that works out. He says, no, I'm going to go first. I'm going to go there first, and you follow me, and I'm going to lead the way, even when it doesn't make sense. He shares the struggles that we all face, and he continues to walk with us. Christ calls his church to love each other, to bear each other's burdens, that even in the midst of hardship and struggles and guilt and shame, we walk together as Christ walks collectively with his people. I have seen this church do amazing things in my four years here, almost. I tell people when they come and they visit the church and they're asking, I'm like, if you get one of us, you get all of us. Sorry. You know, we're called to walk together and to bear each other's burdens and to do life together. Life's hard enough by itself, is it not? It's hard by ourselves, isn't it? But aren't you glad that the Lord has given you this church, these people, to walk with you and to love you and to care for you? Does that mean that we're perfect? No, far from it. But it's what the Lord has given us in His grace to do it together And he walks with us and he loves us and he calls us to follow him. And we look to Christ and we trust that one day our pining sadness will be transformed into glorious joy. And we say, come Lord Jesus. But even in the midst of that, what a good and blessed and glorious hope that we have. That the suffering and death and pain and fear that we experience in this life does not have the final word. That just around the corner... There is coming an ever-springing gladness and hope in heaven for all eternity. And we look to the manger and say, Thank you, Lord, that you took upon yourself our flesh, that you could dwell and to open the way for us through your flesh. And so Christ calls his church to be generous, to live self-sacrificially as we work to see God's kingdom break through more and more into the world around us, not so that he will love us, but because he already loves us. And we respond. The cross of Christmas shows us a Christ who cares. And now Christ calls us to humble ourselves, to love each other, to love the world around us for his glory. Because he has participated and walked in our shoes. He came in flesh and dwelt among us. And so we sing all these great Christmas hymns. And we love the hymns that talk about the coming of Christ into the world. But we also know that his coming into the world was leading to one place, and that was to the cross. And a cross, and we hope in Christ. And so here's the fastball yet again. One more time. Same fastball every week. What's the call? Why, why should we care? Look to Christ. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Dwell upon Christ. As we think back in his coming into the world, as we light these candles, as we think about the lead up to this Messiah coming into the world, as we wait, we feel that longing. We feel that pining in our heart. But the pining is this, come Lord Jesus and make everything right. Come make it right again and help us to be faithful and to love others around us for the sake of your glory, not ours. So look to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. 
Lord, we get this picture of you coming into the world to rescue and redeem us and to live the life, the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death on the cross that we all deserve because of our sin. It takes our breath away. We think about and dwell upon your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your love. Lord, we are grateful that the manger, the cross, and the crown, they all hang together. And Lord, in this week, we do pray that you would give us opportunities to be generous and kind with those around us, either generous with our resources if we're able, or just generous with our words. Offer a word of encouragement. There's a lot of people this time of year who are just hurting, and they need to just hear a kind word of grace and to know that somebody sees them. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to glorify and enjoy you forever in all that we do. And as we await the coming of Christmas morning, we think about and we get to experience just in some small way this pining of the church throughout the ages, waiting either for your first arrival or even now as we wait for your second coming. And our prayer is, come Lord Jesus, come make all this right. But in the meantime, help us to trust you and to trust your good heart. And we're thankful, Lord, that you lead the way that you don't call us to go somewhere that you yourself have not gone first, even to death itself. And so, Father, may that remind us of your mercy, your grace, your comfort, and your love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.